We begin with a story told in The Anatomy of Hope by Jerome Groupman, MD. One day, St. Peter found an especially long line of saints waiting patiently in line to get into heaven. Of course, it took a very long time for all the credentials to be checked and so on, but being saints, those waiting in line were quite patient. <laughs> Suddenly, a figure in a white coat with a stethoscope in his stethoscope in his pocket, strode right past the line and through the pearly gates. Now these were really saintly people, but they'd been waiting a long time, and understandingly, they got a bit irritated. So one of the saintly people approached St. Peter and said, St. Peter, we've waited a long time patiently in line, and all of a sudden this guy with a white coat and a stethoscope just walks past you and into heaven. What that's, what's that all about? Oh, said St. Peter, that's God. He thinks he's a doctor. <laughs> I got interested in the placebo effect several years ago when a friend, very much an engineer and skeptic, was talking to a mutual friend who was into alternative medicine. It's all the placebo effect. You pay all that money and it's all the placebo effect. Why doesn't somebody study how to put the placebo effect into a pill or something? <laughs> this stuck in my mind. <laughs> then a few years ago, I did a Google search and found a book, Faith in the Placebo Effect by Lolette Kuby. This was quite interesting. She was diagnosed with cancer and a mastectomy was indicated. She told the doctor she would decide in a week. She spent the week reading and searching and had two intense religious experiences. At the end of the week, she knew that her cancer was cured. She refused treatment and lived with a tumor which did not change in size for over eight years. She finally decided to have a lumpectomy but at no time took any radiation or chemotherapy. She has remained cancer free. She reports that her doctors now doubt that she had cancer, despite a biopsy that indicated it. There's no place in their world for somebody who recovers from cancer, as if it were a cold or the flu. You would think that a new drug that had this kind of an effect would be intensely interesting, but her doctors are uninterested in her experience. In fact, the approach of traditional medicine is just that just getting over a disease is a source of error in drug studies and needs to be stamped out in experimental designs by using double-blind studies. A source of error, not a source of study. Kuby tells the story of Phineas Parkhurst Quimby, an uneducated New England clockmaker. Quimby learned hypnotism from a student of Mesmer and became an extraordinary hypnotist. He began to use hypnotism to heal. He had an experience when the horse pulling his buggy was frightened and broke into a wild run that required all of Quimby's strength and presence of mind to bring to halt. Before this incident, he had suffered for years from severe back pains. After the incident, he was completely healed. Quimby took this experience as proof that his back problem had originated in his mind and was then translated to his body. Once the problem was dislodged from his mind, the body healed. 
Quimby saw this connection between body and mind as a natural law, a science. The sick came from all over New England to be cured. Mary Baker Eddy, founder of the Christian Science Movement, came to be cured of a back problem and stayed to become his student. In turn, she taught or influenced many of the new thought leaders of the 19th century, including many early Unitarians and Universalists. Kuby has no doubt that Quimby was right, that every disease of the body is, at its core, a disease of the mind. Believing this, the placebo effect needs no further explanation. I continued looking for other sources and found a veritable encyclopedia of placebo studies, a book 40 years in the writing by a husband and wife team, the Dr. Shapiro, at Mount Sinai Hospital. The book is very dry, but actually very heretical in its thesis. The Shapiros believe that virtually nothing throughout history of medicine has actually affected a cure. That the history of medicine, up to a few decades ago at least, is largely the history of the placebo effect. They quote extensively and convincingly to support their claim that earlier cures, from Egyptian and Greek to Roman to medieval and into the early 20th century, were all medically worthless. And when you contemplate the preferred medication, crocodile dung, powdered unicorn horn, moss scraped from the skull of a murderer, it is easy to believe that. The Shapiros believe that all psychotherapy operates through the placebo effect. They also point out that medical specialists often believe that other specialties are dominated by the placebo effect, but theirs is immune. Psychologists don't believe that pop problems. Most medical doctors don't think much of psychologists. And even surgeons don't see anything unusual about the fact that tonsillectomies used to be universal and are now very rare. What I personally find strange in their argument is only that they think the last two decades are any different. Most doctors would probably agree that they do not heal the body. The body heals itself. The job of medicine is to support, encourage, stimulate, and otherwise make possible this healing. A doctor may set a broken limb, but the patient grows the bone back together. A doctor may remove a cancerous lump, but the body repairs the damage and discourages a recurrence. But this belief does not explain why virtually every society has set aside part of its wealth to support a class of healers, doctors, or shamans. It seems that while we heal ourselves, we need the help of others. New Age gurus believe with Kubi that we all have the power to heal ourselves. Religious leaders preach that God has the power to heal all things. And yet even these gurus and preachers find themselves becoming healing icons, supplanting the medical icons whose downfall they advocate. As I did my research, I discovered that there's a wonderful field called medical anthropology. A fascinating book by Daniel Mormon from the University of Michigan addresses the placebo effect. This book, more than any other I found, is explicitly interested in what the placebo effect is and how it works. He actually refers to it as the meaning effect because sometimes our beliefs enhance the effect of the drug and sometimes they negate it. If you give someone in the United States a blue pep pill or a red sleeping pill, 
they're less likely to report the desired effect than if the pep pill were red and sleeping pill were blue. And this is true even if the red and blue pills are made of sugar. Mormon discusses some very elegant experiments that show conclusively that for a placebo to work, it helps if the patient thinks it will work, but the most potent effect is seen when the doctor thinks it will work. Some of the information in this book is quite startling. German doctors, generally as well-trained as US doctors, prescribe seven times as much digitalis per person as any other country, much of it going to older people. The US prescribes the vast majority of Ritalin and other attention deficit disorder drugs. In most of the rest of the world, ADD is not recognized, or if recognized, certainly isn't seen as something that needs to be treated. Even with the same medical knowledge, societies have large differences in how this knowledge is applied. While the placebo effect has not been greatly studied, the last de several decades have seen an increase in research on the mind-to-body connection, which may be sort of the same thing. Hans Selye has studied the effect of stress, particularly its effect on the immune system. In one study, he studied the incidence of strep infections in 100 people in 16 families over a year. There was no association between the number of infections and the amount of streptococci present, the allergic history of the patient, the presence or absence of tonsils, changes in the weather, the type of housing or family size. There was a strong and remarkable association with acute personal family stress. Probably the best known exponents of faith healing are the Christian scientists. Christ performed many miracles of healing in the Bible and repeatedly stressed that the key to healing is faith. The Theosophical Movement and the Unity Church, a close cousin of Unitarianism, also have a strong belief in faith healing. Among more traditional religious traditions, the healings at Lourdes in France are probably the best known. Several thick books report on the, quote, miracles that have happened there. Some of the New Age community have concluded that there's no such thing as disease, that every disease is something we give ourselves and we can cure ourselves. In this, they sound very much like Christian scientists, though most would shun the comparison. Others sound much like doctors. The disease is still to be cured by external manipulation, but it's acupuncture, copper bracelets, megavitamins, algae, diet, or something else often available for a limited time at a substantial discount if you act now. So most medical doctors see the placebo effect as a source of error to be eliminated by costly and complicated experimental techniques. Others like Mormon, Kubi, and some new age gurus see the body as the ultimate hero and the placebo effect is tapping into the mind-body connection. Religious healers see God as the ultimate healer. The true path to healing is through faith, not through the mind. It seems to me that all these viewpoints are lacking. People without visible faith do recover from disease, even very serious ones. Many doctors do use the placebo effect, especially outside of the US, quite consciously. For example, they may give a placebo to a patient with a flu, a viral infection, who requests an antibiotic, 
when the doctor feels the antibiotic will not help and might harm the patient. And of course, while effective, the placebo effect is often not as effective as real drugs. In the US, malpractice laws make it difficult for a doctor to give a patient a placebo. If it doesn't work, they can be sued. As I pondered these contradictions, I began to see some patterns. Much of contemporary medicine is very mechanistic. To oversimplify, the basic belief is that the true art of medicine is in the diagnosis. Once you've decided that a patient has a particular disease, the treatment is determined by the book. End of story. And malpractice suits and managed care have intensified this by the book ethos. Medical treatments are developed through clinical trials that are run like scientific experiments. Although with billions of dollars at stake, one is justified in being a bit suspicious of the quality of this science. In these trials, the only role of the patient is to sit there passively and be acted upon by the doctor and the medicines. With this worldview, an experience like Lolet Kubi's is literally incomprehensible. The only possible explanation is that the diagnosis was wrong. At the same time, surviving the gauntlet of these scientific trials gives doctors strong confidence in the treatment. So the placebo effect is at its most powerful. The process feeds on itself. Success breeds an expectation of success, which breeds more success. The scientific basis of medicine is shaky at best, in my view. All science is done by controlled experiment. And when dealing with diseased human beings, controls are very difficult to come by. How do we control for or measure someone's faith, positive outlook, courage, determination, depression, or beliefs? The difference in the way the same science is applied in different societies just strengthens this case. During two different doctor strikes in Israel, the death rate dropped, only to rise again when the strikes were over. The effect was statistically significant. Can we therefore conclude that doctors cause disease, much like smoking, and ban them? The effects of the mind are very powerful. Elderly Chinese are more likely to die during certain months of the year. There are an infinite number of environmental effects, from the daily news to the phases to the moon, that might contaminate our experiment. I don't believe medicine will ever have all the answers and may not even have the most effective answers in some cases. A second observation involves the consequences of treating disease as an antagonist. Kubi says this well. About six years ago, a friend of mine died of cancer of the breast. She wanted to get well. She wanted it so much that she spent most of her time working on getting well. She joined cancer support groups, followed a macrobiotic anti-cancer diet. She prayed to get over her cancer and meditated to get over her cancer. She read about cancer. She talked and talked about cancer. She did spiritual healing to cure her cancer. She died of her cancer. Kubi maintains that illness flourishes when we focus too intensely on curing it. When we compose a story that, quote, has our life as a landscape and a disease as the main character. When we make our illness the center of our life, we're clutching it to ourselves. I believe in centering my life on my life, not on my sicknesses. Perhaps we can melt away a disease or simply leave it behind rather than engaging God and modern medicine in a titanic struggle in which we become the battlefield.
Kubi sees her religious revelations as giving her, quote, a powerfully healing state of consciousness, forgetfulness of the disease. Those who have a strong faith that God can take their disease away are, in their own way, tapping into the confident physician dynamic known to enhance the placebo effect. Physicians may have MDs from Harvard Medical School and lots of credentials, but they don't hold a candle to God. And if God says I can be cured and I really believe that, the placebo effect is especially free to work. Can we harness the placebo effect while still knowing that's what we're doing? Is it necessary for us to project our own healing power onto God or a physician or a drug? I personally think it's not necessary, but it's usually very helpful. If you're manifesting sickness, you're displaying a disharmony with the universe of long enough standing to affect your body. It's asking a lot to expect a patient by themselves to spontaneously understand the nature of this disharmony and reverse this long-standing pattern to effect a cure. Healing the disharmony, disharmony can, it seems to me, include physical acts like quitting smoking, spiritual acts like prayer and pr pilgrimage, and mental acts like visualization and meditation. We also need to acknowledge that even if the disharmony is eliminated, there may be physical and emotional effects that remain. And we should treat the disharmony and the resulting effects by the most effective means, be they medical, psychiatric, faith-based, mental discipline, or a combination. Let me say, I have a great deal of respect for the medical profession. I am here because my grandmother's type 1 diabetes was diagnosed two years after insulin was invented. Neither my daughter nor her mother would have survived her birth without medical science. My concern is the tendency to believe that that's all there is. The good news is that we potentially have a great deal of power to improve our health and cure our own illnesses. The bad news is that it appears to be very difficult for us to tap into this without some help. Perhaps we need to develop our own synthesis to discover what works for us, surround ourselves with healing agents who are confident in their abilities and the power of their cures, agents in whom we have faith, and who knows, maybe God really is a doctor. <laughs>